0: Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. Hi, I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, a clinical microbiologist and the chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology for the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Here today with me is Dr. Amir Siddiqui Akha, uh, an Assistant Professor of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology and Laboratory Section Director of Cellular and Molecular Immunology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And we're going to be talking today about an exciting new test, the dendritic cell enumeration test. So Amir, thank you so much for being with us here today.
1: Pleasure. I'm glad to be here.
0: Yeah, so maybe we'll just start with a simple question, if you could tell us a little bit about you and your background.
1: So I am, by training, a basic immunologist as well as a medical laboratory immunologist. My interests are in immunology at the two ends of life, primary immunodeficiencies in children and the effect of age on the immune system. And I have worked in these two contexts in parallel, if you will.
0: Interesting. Well, let's go into then the dendritic cell enumeration test. What is this exactly?
1: So let me tell you what dendritic cells are. They were discovered by the late Ralph Steinman and Zanvin Cohn at Rockefeller in 1973. The name comes from the processes they have they just form them and retract them. And it's because of the dendrites in the neurons that they got this name. And well, They look like in-
0: dendrites then, with those little processes sticking out from them.
1: Exactly. Right. exactly. Okay. So they are very rare in the peripheral blood, but they're, if you will, critical sentinels in the immune response. They have a primary role in the control of what we call innate immune response, which is what is done first and it's not very specific, and also adaptive immune response where uh, the immune system fine-tunes its answer. It makes antibodies or has cells that kill virally infected cells and so on. Mm -hmm. So they are put into two categories. One which Steinman found are called conventional myeloid dendritic cells, and there's another group which are called plasmacytoid dendritic cells. The plasmacytoid dendritic cells are the main producers of a class of interferons called interferon type 1, like interferon alpha and interferon beta. And in the absence of antibodies, there is a first line of defense against viremia. So what this test does is that it counts the number of plasma cytoid dendritic cells and myeloid dendritic cells in the peripheral blood, and also monocytes. And the inclusion of monocytes is that there are a number of diseases where they go up or down in tandem with differences in the, other, the two subsets of dendritic cells.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I think that the immunology, um, our immune system is so fascinating. So we're counting dendritic cells. And what's innovative or different about this test?
1: This is the only clinical test for counting dendritic cells in the United States. They can do it, you know, in a research setting, obviously, but there isn't one where a clinician can order this and get the result. Because it's a clinical test, it has gone through the rigorous set of validations that are necessary. We have a reference range for it, obviously. We have, I think, over 140 adults and uh, over 60 children that we've used for this reference range so it is different with a case where you have somebody suspected of a disease and you have a control and you just base your diagnosis or conclusion on comparing one person who you think is has a sickness versus somebody that you think is normal it's based on a broad number of reference subjects.
0: So really fully validate it with a a large reference range. That's really interesting. What would you say is the primary use case then of this test?
1: The first intention for doing this was to use it in the context of a number of primary immunodeficiencies. So diseases where you would have a defect in the development of the immune system where One or both, one of these subsets is not produced or both of them are not produced. On the whole, they're not very prevalent diseases, but uh, I can name a few of them. For instance, GATA2 deficiency, DOC8 deficiency, Icarus deficiency, and IRF8 deficiency are a few of the ones that are important in this. Then there are other diseases where you don't have these cells functioning properly. And knowing if you have enough of them helps you to see if the function is the result of not having enough or the ones that you have are not functioning properly.
0: Okay. So how would you foresee this
1: test being used? Well, I think the validation part of this has been for the immunodeficiencies. Mm -hmm. But because of the central role of dendritic cells, there can be other uses. For instance, we are undertaking a study with dendritic cell enumeration and function in the context of COVID infection. And the use of this is to see if we can predict outcomes in the disease. And this is based on Uh, some studies that have been published already, more than one group of studies where they have seen that patients with severe COVID have fewer dendritic cells of a PDC type. And also that the ones with more severe disease also make less interferon type one, which is interferon that they make. There have also been two genetic studies, one done here by NIH and Rockefeller, which was published in Science about a month ago, and a study in England which came out in Nature just last week, which puts emphasis on the axis of interferon type 1 production and its correlation with severe COVID. So that's one use of the test then there are other contexts that these can potentially be used. For instance, there are some immunotherapeutics monoclonal antibodies in the context of more common diseases where the monoclonal antibody as its side effect would affect the number of PDCs or MDCs. And it can have consequences on the function of these and as a result, response to viral infection.
0: Interesting. A lot from just a single test. So do you think that we'll be using this test for perhaps our very sick individuals here at Mayo Clinic?
1: Well, I want to reserve judgment till we have done our study and what it comes out with. If you base it on literature from others, Mm -hmm. that would make sense. But I think it would be good to have our own data on it separately as well to validate what others have done.
0: Sure, very wise. Well, this will be an interesting area to keep an eye on. So, how would someone order this test? Is it available outside of Mayo Clinic as well?
1: Yes, we can order it either internally uh, here, but externally through uh, Mayo Clinic labs it's available.
0: Okay, great. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to share about this whole process and coming up with this uh, really novel test?
1: Well, one thing has been, you know, there's been two parts to this. There's this enumeration that is online now. There is parallel to this where we're looking at the function that will hopefully be a clinical test in the next year at some point. But specifically What I want to say is that, as you know, if I sit and think it would be good to have this test, it's not just going to happen. There are a lot of individuals involved who would bring this to fruition. This test in the context of the immunodeficiencies was something we started a few years ago. But given the developments within the last year, we had to breathe new life into it. And for that, I'm thankful to the innovation group, Dr. Salame, Dr. Kipp, and Ms. Kathy Bates. In our lab, we have had to adjust you know, the work of different people so that they could accommodate it into the routine work of the lab and the labs, Uh, supervisor and assistant supervisor have been very helpful in that Liz Oval and Dan Gertner and also any test that we develop after it passes the validation and it's ready to go Stacy League is the one who takes it from there builds it into soft and so on and she was instrumental to this but the person I want to single out here is the development tech in the lab there are two development techs one Scott Ennis who helped towards the end of it but most of all I want to thank Crescent Isham. Mm -hmm. Crescent started this a few years ago and it has had its ups and downs and she was the most motivated and sometimes even motivating me to (laughs) follow this along and get it to the point where it got so I'm thankful to all of them.
0: It really is a team effort, isn't it, when we look back on how something gets accomplished, and it's been amazing to me in recording all of these podcasts. I've gotten to talk to a lot of people, and it's just clear how COVID's really pushed us to do really good things, and maybe faster or in different ways, you know, it's pushed us to innovate, and this is just another excellent thing that came out of this otherwise very challenging situation. So, Thank you, Dr. Siddiqui for sharing all of this with me today, and uh, I'm sure that our listeners will enjoy hearing more about this. We'll have to keep an eye on this in the future.
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.